Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor David Eldridge. All right, so we've been looking at 1 Peter for a long time, past six or seven weeks, this one word, exile, temporary, resident, stranger in a foreign land. These guys are exiles, but not because they moved but because they shifted their loyalty from whoever the Roman gods were to Jesus. And that shift in loyalty resulted in a change in lifestyle. So now they're outsiders in their own hometowns, places where they grew up, they used to be insiders. And one of the things Peter says is because of that shift, you can expect to face persecution. You can expect suffering. You've gone again from being an insider to an outsider. People have known you your whole life You're suddenly changing the way you're living. We looked at this last week. They're surprised. They're astonished, and they're heaping abuse on you. They don't love it. And so you should be ready for that. Take encouragement. Jesus also suffered for doing doing good. And last week, we looked at this idea of arming ourselves with the same attitude that Jesus had. So when we face suffering, Peter says, arm yourself with the same attitude Jesus took or when he faced suffering, and what is that attitude? He accepted, or if you like embraced, if you like that word better, accepted or embraced suffering as a byproduct of obedience to the Father. So he didn't seek out suffering for its own sake, but if it came as a result of obedience, then he accepted or he embraced it. So that's where we were last week. Today, this little mini section within First Peter wraps up. So we're gonna start in verse seven. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So the end of all things is near. That's important not just for Peter. That's a New Testament truth. So I'm gonna, this is gonna be a bit technical, but I think it's really, really important. So we're gonna spend some time on it. So Old Testament view of history. History is linear. It's not cyclical and it's not, it's not random. It's headed somewhere. There's an end a goal, a purpose determined by God. And history can be divided into two different ages. The present age, which is marked by evil, so the present evil age, and a future age marked by righteousness. And the line of demarcation between those two ages is called the day of the Lord. Or if you read the Old Testament, sometimes it just says the day or that day. Not a literal 24 hours, but a decisive moment in history where God acts to redeem his people, in the Old Testament, that's Israel, and to destroy his enemies, where he kind of wipes the slate clean and has his people there. He's their God, they're his people. The day of the Lord, a time of judgment for those who have rejected God and a time of salvation for those who accepted him. That's the Old Testament view. Very clear line that separates these two ages. In the New Testament, some of those ideas remain. The idea that history is linear, it's going somewhere, there's a purpose, a goal, an end determined by God, that there are two ages, a present evil age and a future age of righteousness. But the idea of the day of the Lord, because of the coming of Jesus, that it's gotten elongated or expanded, it's gotten modified. It's gone from being seen as maybe a singular event to, to 
to being, again, a bit more stretched out. There's, there's bookends, if you like to think of it that way. Jesus' first coming, first Christmas, first Easter, what we read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then Jesus' second coming when he's going to return. Those are the bookends. And in between, it's called the last days. When you leave here, you're going to walk through that door, and there's going to be a, a, a brief second where part of you is in the sanctuary and part of you is in the lobby. You're in two different places. That's where we live as believers. We live in between the present evil age and the age to come. We live in a time where sin has been forgiven, where Satan has been defeated, but where Satan is not fully destroyed and where sin continues to have an impact on us. We live in a time where the effects of the fall are beginning to be reversed, but not fully. You heard testimonies this morning of people who were healed. And if we went around, there's some of you who haven't been. You're still sick. I would say all of the tension, but just in case I'm wrong, I'll say most of the tension that we feel as Christians is because we live in this already, not yet. We live in in between these times. I'm partly in this room and partly in another. And that creates tension for us and honestly frustration and confusion at times because we can experience some of the age to come, some of the rule and reign of God in our life, but we also continue to be impacted by the fall, by our own sinfulness and brokenness. And again, that, that tension, red and blue make purple, that box, that's where we all live. It's called the last days. Peter, that's what he says. This is the, we're in the last days. That's what he says in Acts chapter two. And again, that can create some tension for us, but it's really important because the New Testament assumes that. So the New Testament ethic, the way the New Testament says this is what to follow Jesus and what it looks like to live as brothers and sisters and what, does it look, what it looks like to engage the world assumes that the end is near and that you're living in the end times. It assumes that. It's, it's all throughout. It's not just 1 Peter 4, 7. You see that idea from, you see it in Jesus, particularly in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You see it in Paul. You see it in John. You see it here in Peter. This idea that, again, the end is near and so we should live accordingly. It's easy for us to lose sight of that, but it's really important for us to keep that in mind. So history's going somewhere, there's an end, there's a goal, there's a purpose, there's a present evil age, there's a future age to come, and we live in between, kind of in the mixing of those two ages, where one is on the way out and the other is on the way in, and we live in that kind of threshold time. That's the end. So when Peter says the end, he's talking about the second bookend when Jesus returns. And that'll be the end of the old age and the full beginning of the new. And he says, that's near. And you may say, he wrote that in 60 AD. That was 1930 years ago or whatever it is. No way. Whatever near means, it doesn't mean that. Was he just wrong? And that's what some people say, he's just wrong. I, I would say, no, that's not a great posture to take. I think the Bible's... Inspired word of God, so I think it's true. And it's not a stray verse in 1 Peter. You gotta cut out a lot of things if you say the end is no longer near, including the things Jesus said in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You can say they all misquoted him, but they all misquoted him the same way then. He said that his return was near. And so the idea that they're just wrong, I would shelf that and say, so in what ways can we understand this to be true? One, and we've talked about this a lot, kairos, chronos, two different ways of understanding time. Kairos is the right time. Chronos is watch time. God doesn't care about this. 
He cares about when the circumstances are properly aligned for him to act. Peter, in 2 Peter, just a few years after he wrote what we just read, he's continuing to address the idea of Jesus' return. And he says, listen, I know there are people who are talking. People in your towns, they're talking. You're talking about Jesus returning and they're saying, it's not gonna happen. Nothing is changing. You're wrong. It's been a year, it's been two years, it's been three years. Nothing is changing. And Peter says, don't get thrown off by that. God's not slow in keeping his promise the way we understand slowness. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to come to faith. He's creating space for people to repent. With him, a day's like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. So if it's been 1900 and X years, we could say, well, it's just the weekend from God's perspective. It's, it's two days. From his, he's not doing Kronos. He's doing Kairos and he's creating space for people to repent and be saved. So in one sense, we can say, well, the end is near because it's God's time and not ours. If you read through the Old Testament, the amount of time between promise and fulfillment can be centuries on a personal level. Abraham, 25 years from you're gonna have a son till Isaac is born. And that's just on a personal level. Think about that within your lifetime. You heard a testimony from Dan. 21 years, he's been waiting on the fulfillment of a promise. Oh, almost half of his life, he's been waiting on that. And others of you have similar testimonies. On a grander scale, a national or a, we can say a cosmic scale, Isaiah 9, one of the most famous Messianic prophecies. A child is given, a son's gonna be born. 700 years later, Jesus is born. And that's not unusual in the Old Testament for there to be hundreds of years between promise and fulfillment. Why? Because God's waiting on the right time. He's giving people an opportunity to respond. It increases our faith. It gives them a chance to refine our character. There's lots of good things happen in the waiting. So for him, a day's like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. Also, if you think about God's capital P plan, this plan of redemption that he's enacted, at least going back to Genesis 3 with the fall of Adam and Eve. He's been working to redeem and to restore. And there's some big rocks in that plan. And there's only one left and it's Jesus' return. Sequentially, the next thing to happen is Jesus' return. That's all that's left in the plan. And so Jesus is near in the sense that the next thing, we don't know when that's gonna be, but the next thing is his return. So the end is near. And again, easy to lose sight of that. Nothing about the life that we live here in Marietta is gonna reinforce the idea that the end of all things is near. The opposite is true. It's 2 Peter 3. You can read that chapter this week. Scoffers scoffing. What's this talk about a return? It's not happening. Everything just goes on the same day after day. And that can be our experience as well. But again, the New Testament, it, the whole perspective is Jesus' return is imminent. And if we're going to understand and obey, it's important for us to lock that into our hearts. There's four commands and four is too many for one day. So we're gonna move through them really quick and I want you to grab onto the one that resonates with you the most. The thing I most want you to get out of this morning is the end of all things is near. If you can't remember anything else, try to remember that and begin to ask the Lord, what would it look like for me to live in light of that truth? If the end of all things is near, how should that impact the way I live tomorrow and next week and next month and next year and next decade? I don't know that Jesus is returning in any of our lifetimes. Honestly, if I was betting, I would say probably not. Just based on 
what he says in Matthew, the gospel has to be preached to all nations. There's 3.2 billion people who still haven't heard the good news. 7,000 people groups. There's a lot of work to be done. And people are actively working towards that, praying towards that, going towards that. But that doesn't change the fact that the end of all things is near. And we wanna live accordingly. So Peter says, here's these four things that you can do. First, be alert and be sober-minded so that you can pray. To be alert is to be level-headed. To be clear-minded is, I mean, excuse me, to be sober-minded is to be clear-minded. It's the opposite of being drunk. Keep your head on straight. Keep your feet on the ground. Why? So you can pray. It can be easy if we hear Jesus is returning to kind of go off the rails a little bit. Oh, well, if he's returning any minute now, then I don't have to go to work tomorrow. I'm just gonna go hang on in Kennesaw Mountain and look at the sky and wait for him to come back. Not a good idea. Jesus is coming back, so it's all gonna burn anyway. So why does it matter what I do? Not a good idea. That's Peter is saying, listen, I want you to be alert and I want you to be sober-minded. The way Jesus says is I want you to watch. That's what I want you to do. And it doesn't mean watch the sky. When he's talking to the disciples, he's basically saying, I want you to watch yourselves. What does he say in the garden? Watch and pray so you don't fall into temptation. These last days are a mixed bag. We have great responsibility, discipling of the nations. That's a huge responsibility in front of us. And there's also a time of great squeezing, of, of distress, of persecution, of tribulation, false Christ, false prophets, false teachers, so a time of deception. Within the church, the love of many will grow cold, an increase of worldliness. It's a mixed bag in these last days where we're living. And so what Jesus says, or what Peter says to us, is in the midst of that, I want you to pray. Pray that you don't fall into temptation during that time of being squeezed and also pray for the kingdom to come and God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that may seem super trite, that petition from the Lord's Prayer. But if you pray that prayer sincerely, it'll worm its way into your heart and you'll, you'll find yourself at Osborne High School leading a Bible study with a bunch of inside linebackers. That's what you're gonna find yourself doing. And going, I, I, don't, really, I don't really know what I'm doing. But I said yes, and this is where I am. You have a, and I have a responsibility in that that may not be a, a very clear right now. But as you begin to pray that prayer, if you're serious and sincere, God will begin to unfold to you. What does that look like for that prayer to be answered through you? So be alert and be sober-minded so you can pray. Above all else, love one another deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Love one another deeply. Uh, maintain your affection towards one another. Be earnest in your expressions of love towards one another. Again, this is a, a, a end times, last days, mixed bag that we're living in. These congregations are small. They're dozens of people, certainly not hundreds or thousands of people at the time. And in that environment where they're being squeezed, where they are suffering, it can be easy in those moments. Your, your fuse gets short, doesn't it? When you're being squeezed, when you're being stressed, when you're being tested, you get short with one another. There's this great responsibility that we have to participate in the discipling of the nations. That's what the, Peter's laying on these guys. And, and it can be 
easy to get distracted. And so what Peter is saying is, listen, stop sniping with one, at one another. Don't be petty. Love covers over a multitude of sins. These, some of these interpersonal squabbles, they just need to be squashed. Extend grace, extend mercy, give the benefit of the doubt. And I want you to hear me. It doesn't mean give everybody a free pass for sin. Matthew 18 still applies. Somebody sins against you, you can go to them. But even the way you go to them, you go to them as an individual and say, hey, th- this is what I'm seeing. This is how you impacted or hurt me and you bring it to them. If that doesn't work, then it escalates from there. But the first step is it's a covering over. It's not a blasting on social media. That's not, that's not the first step. That's no step. So to say love covers over a multitude of sins is not to say sin is never confronted. It's still confronted, but you can't confront every sin of every person who's in your life. That's more than a full-time job. You won't be done with Monday before it's Tuesday. So there's gotta be this sense, again, among one another. Our love for each other covers over some of that, some of those things. We extend grace and mercy. And as the Lord leads, we confront when that's the, the loving and kind thing to do. Offer hospitality without grumbling. Hospitality is literally the welcoming of strangers into your home. It's the thing that you've been told not to do since you were five years old. And Peter is saying, do that. Offer hospitality. There are no holiday inns. There are no Airbnbs. So you've got little churches and, me, and churches that are a little bit bigger. And the little bit bigger churches that are a little bit more established, that are a little bit older, are sending resources. They're sending people to these churches that are up and coming, just getting started. They're sending missionaries. They're sending prophets. They're sending teachers to encourage and strengthen and instruct and help lay a foundation And when these guys get there, when the the guys from Smyrna get here, there's no place for them to stay. And Peter's saying, you need to open up your home to them. Give them, they're strangers to you, but in this case, they're all brothers. They're brothers in the Lord. So you need to give them a place to stay and you need to feed them. You need to do that without murmuring or complaining. You've had people in your house before. You know how easy that, that can go sideways. How quickly People can begin to get on your nerves and take advantage of your generosity and your hospitality. Peter recognizes that. He says, offer hospitality to these guys who are traveling around. You may not know them, but they're sent by the Capital C Church. This is, this is a missional move. The gospel doesn't spread if you're not opening your home up. Where does Paul stay? Where does Barnabas stay? Where, do they, where, do they, where are they staying if they come to your town, if you're not opening your home to them? This is a vital component in the spreading of the gospel. Now, only 40 years after this, they codified it. 100 AD, there's a rule. It's in this book called the Didache. It's, and they said three days, that's it. They, got, they can stay with you for three days. If somebody stays with you a fourth day, they either gotta go to somebody else's house or they have to get a job so they can pay their own way. That's how quick... I, it's, y- y'all been there, you, you, you know how that can go. Easy to be taken advantage of, again, easy for that pettiness to creep in, so it's important for us to love one another deeply. So what does that look like for us? Our context is different. We do have holiday inns and Airbnbs. Sometimes somebody comes to speak at a, you know, at a retreat and we say, oh, you can stay in my basement or whatever. That's one expression. I, I would push maybe a little bit just towards 
hospitality and how you're expressing that maybe less is entertaining. It's not that that's a bad word, but maybe seeing it through the lens of how is, how is me opening my home up to someone, having dinner with them, inviting them to my home, how is that contributing to what God is wanting to do? Like maybe it's, you say, maybe you pray a little bit or maybe there's intentional conversation or opportunities to try to encourage one another. You can read Luke 14. There's some good instruction there from Jesus on what it looks like to invite others into your home, what it looks like to welcome them with that kingdom lens. It doesn't mean every time you have somebody over, you do a Bible study or you're never gonna, nobody's coming back. But there is, there, there's a sense of I'm gonna be intentional with my hospitality. I, I want there to be more to it than us just having, you know, just eating together. And the last thing Peter says, pray, love one another deeply, offer hospitality. And he says, use whatever gift you've been given to serve one another, being a faithful steward of God's grace. He's talking about spiritual gifts, these expressions or manifestations of the grace of God that he gives to us so that we can serve others well. And he says, each of you, which implies everybody has at least one spiritual gift. If you're a Christian, then you have a spiritual gift. The Holy Spirit lives within you and he has gifted you in some way, period, dot, the end. There's no believer who does not have a spiritual gift. You may not know what it is, but that's not the same thing as not having one. And what Peter is saying is you need to use that. You, to be a steward is to be a manager of somebody else's resources. So God has taken some of his grace and he's given it to each one of us. And what he's saying is, well, what are you gonna do with that? You can think of the parable of the talents in Matthew. Some people get one and some people get two and some people get five. I don't know how you see yourself, but everybody gets at least one. And at some point, God's gonna say, what did you do with what I gave you? Remember that parable, the guy that buried it, that was not the right thing to do. Things did not go well for him. That's not what we want to do with our spiritual, we want to use them. We want to use them. And so the first step in using them is identifying them. There's a list there behind me. There's Peter divides it into what I think are really helpful categories, serving and speaking. As you think about your own life, do you tend, does God tend to use your mouth or your hands to encourage and love and bless other people? There are, this is where it can get a little bit tricky. There's several places in the New Testament that spiritual gifts are mentioned, Ephesians and Romans and 1 Corinthians. I pulled out the Ephesian gifts. I didn't list those because those are more people than activities or expressions. But there's not, there's not great definitions. There's no glossary that says, here's what these mean and here's how you use them. Paul and Peter just kind of mention them and move on. And so it's difficult for us to say, what exactly does this mean? And so people have tried and there's a QR code behind me. What I would encourage you to do is th those are some definitions. They're not the Bible because the Bible doesn't define all these. It's people's best effort from the Bible and experience and history to say, here's our understanding of how these gifts work. You can take a spiritual gifts test if you want. I, I would not necessarily recommend it. I don't think they're super helpful. You can kind of, you, you can steer the test in the way that you want it to go. But if it's, con if it's confirming for you, by all means, you can Google it and take a test. Where, where I would encourage you is to look at your own life and say, where have I seen fruit? Read those definitions and say, 
look back at your life and say, do I see evidence of, these, uh, of this gift in my life? And don't be falsely modest. It's not helpful. One of the things that trips us up, a gift, most likely when you're exercising it, that activity comes easily for you. And it's easy to dismiss things that we think anybody can do. Well, anybody can do that. You don't realize it's special. And so that it can be helpful to do this in community. A lot of you are in small groups. I don't know what you're doing in your group, but maybe this week you could take a pause and dive a little bit into these gifts and make sure everybody has a sense. And it's not so you can put on a, on a name tag and say, here's my gift. It's just so you know, this is how God tends to use me. It's not the only way he's gonna use you. This doesn't bind you or hem you in, but it does tend to say, Here, here's a place where you're probably going to be effective maybe more effective than somebody else. This is one of the ways that God wants to use you to love and serve and bless other people. It doesn't, like if your gift is teaching, it doesn't mean you never don't, you, you never do anything outside of that realm, but it may mean, hey, I, I, when you're in a teaching role, and that doesn't mean standing up here with a microphone necessarily, just maybe say yes to those things. God's gonna tend to use you in that way. Do you know what your at least one gift is? And are you actively using or being a faithful steward of that? We need it. We need those gifts. It's not just about you being a faithful steward, absolutely, but also it's for the sake of the body. We all need these gifts operating for all of us to be growing together and maturing. You have something to offer that I don't have, but that I need. I don't want you to hear that as pressure, but as an invitation so the end of all things is near. Lock that in. We want to live in light of the fact that Jesus is returning, that his kingdom is being established on the earth as it is in heaven. Think about if you were a German in 1945. The allies are coming. D-Day, the allies are winning. Do you begin to shift some things when you can see the writing on the wall? So that's, that's us, it's recognizing the kingdom is coming. Jesus the king is establishing his kingdom. We don't know when that second bookend is going to, when it's gonna drop. We don't know when he's gonna return, but we know that's going to, ha he's gonna win. So what does it look like for me to align my life with that reality now, whether he returns in my lifetime or not? I wanna be someone who prays. Pray that I don't fall in temptation and pray that the kingdom would come and that God's will will be done here in Marietta, Kennesaw, wherever you live as it is in heaven. I wanna offer hospitality with a kingdom mindset. I wanna use whatever gifts I have to serve others, being a faithful steward. We're gonna close with communion. The way we take that here at Stonebridge, we'll come forward a row at a time, break off a piece of bread, dip it in the juice. There's gluten-free communion or bread here if you need that, and then... There's some of the prepackaged as well. After you take communion, we'll have ministry teams and we'll pray with you about anything at all that you have going on and then um, uh, we'll close with, with a little bit of worship and Adam will dismiss us. As we go into communion, I, th there's a couple of prayers I want us to pray and we're gonna pray those out loud and I'm gonna give you an opportunity to internally reflect on those and then we'll, we'll actually take uh, the bread and the juice. So I'd love you to stand as we read these prayers and then you can sit back down when we're done. So we're gonna, read, we're gonna pray those first two sentences and then we're gonna pause and then we'll pray the rest afterwards.
So let's pray those first two sentences out loud together. Father, I acknowledge that the end of all things is near. Forgive me for not always living in light of this reality. So just close your eyes and just ask the Holy Spirit, what does that look like for me? Most likely it's emphasizing things that are temporary and not putting enough emphasis on things that are eternal. But see if you bring something specific to mind. If something comes to mind, just confess that if you're willing to. God, I confess that I'm fill in the blank. Will you forgive me? I want us to pray this second part. Father, I acknowledge that if you are for me, no one can stand against me. Thank you for not sparing your own son, Jesus, but for sending him to die in my place. Alongside the gift of your son, help me to receive all of the good gifts you desire to give me. So this is from Romans 8, 33, 34, right in there. Paul saying, if God's for us, who can be against us? If God, if the father who did not spare his own son, but gave him for us, how much more will he not give us all things? We've talked about communion being more than just a rote ritual, but actually being an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to make a, a deposit into us. And so as you come forward today, I, I would love for you just to have the mindset, what do you need? This bread and juice represents the body and the blood of Jesus. The Father's already given you the most precious thing he has. What do you need? Do you need clarity? Do you need encouragement? Peace, joy, power, healing. What do you need? If you're willing, just in your own heart. Holy Spirit, as I take communion, this bread and this juice, I want to do it in faith, believing that you're here to meet with me. And I want to receive the good gifts, Father, that you desire to give to me this morning. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. 